Thank you, Gary, for praying for our service and reading the passage for today. Um, for me, it was a real um, arduous week. I had to prepare for a couple lessons and and try to keep up with the angels at the same time. And it just happened that the timing wasn't too great. But um, by God's grace, I got through it. And uh, I'm here today because our pastor, James, and his family, they are on um, sort of well-deserved vacation for the for, with their family. And uh, just to let you know, since he's not here, that, um, you know, due to diff- different circumstances, it's been really difficult on him with his family, his father being sick, and he had to take up, uh, pick up a lot of the slack for his parents at the store and ministering here. And I got sick, and all these people around him got sick, and... It just was very, very difficult for him. So um, I know that, that as a brother, I really uh, sympathize with him, but it's, um, it's really a privilege to work with him because he works through and through. He uh, doesn't complain. Uh, we had many conversations about what we need to do, and we just have to keep going and keep going. And uh, that's sort of the model we've been doing, dealing with um, all these years is just to keep going. So... Let's pray for his family and um, that, that the God will provide them with much grace so that they'll be able to endure um, during these difficult times. So I think things are settling down a little bit and then all of you are, who are helping out in the ministries has definitely been a help and encouragement to both of us. Shall we pray one more time? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for just your blessings upon us and your guidance of this church the saints here. We thank you that, that that you have brought us together and given us salvation and hope in you. Lord, as we discuss this topic of forgiveness today, that we may just listen attentively to what you have to say and see your true character and to learn what true obedience is and what true forgiveness is. I ask that you just guide my path this morning, that you be with my lips that only the words of God and encouragement would come from come from it. We thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me share this with you because it's not a very well-kept secret. Uh, my first date with my wife. It's amazing that she stayed with me after this. On my first date, we had a nice dinner. And on that day, that Friday, May 25th, 1988, after dinner, Rambo 3 was premiering all around the country. <laughs> so we watched them. You know, I, I watched Ram, first Rambo and when I was in high school, and I got all excited. I almost joined, joined the Marines after that. Then 2 came out, and 3 came out, and I followed all the way through. I was toward the end, towards the end of my collegiate years. Now, when I think about that guy after I matured a little bit, you think about him. There's, that John Rambo is one of the most bitter guys I know. Bitter guys depicted in cinema history. Very bitter. So he has much vengeance. He murders people because of it, because he thinks it's justified. He thinks the world has done him wrong. Whether it's right or wrong, so be it. But he believes that. So this attitude of John Rambo is so 
anti-Christian. It's one of the probably most one of the most character, uh, uncharacteristic of a Christian is to be angry or bitter. As we talk about, as we will talk about forgiveness today, you know, forgiving is very difficult for a Christian and even non-Christians alike. But forgiveness reflects probably the highest human virtue. Because I think none other thing that we could do reflects the character of God than forgiveness. Of all human qualities that man may possess, none other may be more Christ-like or more divine than when we forgive others. So, a person who forgives emulates godly character at the highest level. In the Bible deals with forgiveness in many instances throughout Old Testament and New Testament. You know, there's a small book. Few people ever teach on it. Between Titus and Hebrew. Do we know? Philemon. Basically, the whole entire book. It's still inspired by God. Very short book. It's basically all on forgiveness. I was going to teach on that today, but I thought this was more important. It's coming from Christ. So, therefore, almost no other concept is more foundational to Christianity because the entire redemptive history is based upon what? Forgiveness. It's sin and forgiveness. So we will seek scriptures today. What God has, what God's instructions are to us. To one who needs to forgive. One who has been offended. How he is to forgive. And the relationship today we'll watch, you know, we'll, we'll go through it together. It's between a Christian and a Christian. The context of this teaching today is believers who are offended by another believer. Yeah, this is a very difficult lesson for me to preach. It hits me like a ton of bricks. Because I'm preaching to myself today. So you just guys come along for the ride. Because when Paul says he's the greatest sinners, I feel like I am the greatest unforgiver throughout my life. I am definitely preaching to myself. So I pray that God will bless this message and hopefully as you listen in, as I teach myself, that you'll be blessed also. So what is forgiveness? So let's get a little bit technical here. Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free from an obligation to you that is, that is a result of wrong done against you. Okay, so forgiveness involves three elements. First, obviously, there has been offense. Injury, that's time, the legal term. What's resulting from the injury? Number two is death. We have to somehow reconcile the debt. Okay, in the world, there's settlements. So there's like an accident you cause, you run someone over and they're in the hospital for three years. There's going to be damage done and you have to pay for it. Then lastly, somehow, again, the settlement, the cancellation or the settlement of debt, number three. But biblically, what God forgives us of is, not only does it forget, it erases the record or the memory. It's completely gone. Nowadays, if you pay off something, you buy a car or a home, there's documentation, and they say that they stand paid. So, but the record is there. It's on your uh, credit records. If you bought something on credit, you pay for it, it's on your record. But it's a good thing, but it's on your record. If you don't pay for it, it'll still be on your record as well, of not being paid. That's negative. 
But in the New Testament, in the days of the New Testament, when debt was recorded, it was usually recorded on a back of an animal skin. So people would write their record of debt when people owed something. But when that, that debt was paid, it was erased. So there's no record or memory of it anymore. So it was completely gone. So that is sort of the idea what biblically talks about forgiveness when God talks about that he has no memory or no record of it. It's completely gone. Okay. So let's talk about the basis of forgiveness. What is the basis of forgiveness? Obviously, I think we all know. It's Christ. And one of the most impactful passages, I think, in the entire Bible is 2 Corinthians 5:18 through 21. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. They say Roy Jones Jr. is pound for pound the greatest fighter in the world. I think pound for pound, this passage is the most powerful passage in Scripture. God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him, and he has committed to use the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This passage clearly depicts the gospel message of reconciliation, dealing with sin, and forgiveness. So the important thing we have to remember in this reconciliation is God's wrath. What's going to happen with God's wrath? Few people ever ever talk about that in the gospel message. Christ came, died for your sins, so you should believe. Why? Because if sin, there has to be justice done. There's a justice system of God. God is angry. His sin detests Him. What are we going to do about that? So God could have just said, think about it, God could have just said, hey, I forgive you. But that's not how God works. His justice system doesn't work that way. Therefore, He had to give us what He initiated, His Son, to justify Himself. Okay? To justify His justice system. It's the doctrine of substitu- substitutionary atonement. By putting His wrath Carrying out his justice, the punishment that we deserve of those sins, all sins, was on his son. He said, He made him be. That's, he carried out justice that way. That was God's justice. The justice system was satisfied by the atoning death of Christ. There's no way, sinners, no way can quench. The thirst of God's righteous anger. We have no capacity. Only Christ, who was perfect, satisfied that. So this picture clearly depicts the offender has no right. Okay? The offender or the sinner cannot come to the offended and and seek what is justice and seek forgiveness. You could seek forgiveness, but it hinges upon the offended. 
which is God in this case. But lastly, that that God is God. His nature is a Savior. He's a saving God. Therefore, He saved us. You know, if we keep this thing in perspective, it cost Him a lot. It cost Him His Son to forgive us of our transgressions. And it shows you how clearly it must defile Him. It clearly shows how much it turns his stomach when recipients of forgiveness cannot forgive another person. And we'll see that in this parable. I broke this down, this parable, into six chapters. Let me just give you the background. This is not the chapter. This is just an introduction. You know, Matthew 18, we know the context of this text is this is all discussion between not Pharisees or anybody else, it's between his disciples and Christ. Okay? The background, historical context is that in Jewish culture, forgiveness was not necessarily regarded high, as a high virtue. It wasn't esteemed very, very high. But verse 21, Peter, it starts by Peter asking the question. It says, if somebody sins against me and I forgive him, how many times do I have to do that? Seven? And Christ responds by saying, verse 22, I do not say to you that up to seven times, but seventy times seven. And this is for Jewish people at that time. Even to us today, the fleshly mind, you just think about it, it's fleshly mind, just your logic going through. First would say, respond by saying, how unreasonable, what unreasonable standard is this? It, it just defies common sense, period. Okay? That repeated offender should be granted pardon over and over again. It does not just mean, we don't stop at 490th time. We keep going. It's just endless. So the answer is, you forgive as many times as someone sins against you. Let's go to the first chapter 1 of this parable. The Lord King, obviously in this parable, is God. The kingdom of heaven then may be compared to the certain king who wished to settle his accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now 10,000 talents, they say it's equal to 17 years of wages, 17 years of wages for 10,000 men, for 10,000 people. 17 years of 10,000 people. The interesting thing is, in the Roman world, this was just large, huge amount of money. So, when they use, they may say this is uh, just metaphorically speaking, it's ten thousand. Just means sometimes in that context is just something that's a lot, just a huge sum. Just you could say it's infinite or myriads of things. So, it just if you just technically say it, it's seventeen years of um, for ten thousand men. But it's just an English expression. It just means. Something that's a lot. It's unfathomable amount. So this debt was unfathomable. Basically unpayable. It's a massive debt. There's no way to climb out of this. So what did the king do? He said, since he had, didn't have the means to repay to his lord, commanded him be so long, uh, to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had to be repayment to be made. Chapter 2. 
the man who owes his big debt is a sinner, obviously. Verse 26, The slave therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before saying, Have patience with me, I'll repay you everything. It's almost impossible, right? So he's trying to do everything to save his life. His actions were right at the time. He showed, he kneeled, he bowed, he begged for mercy. And the king, or the Lord, in verse 27, has, had compassion on him. He said, Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him debt. There was an incredible gesture of pardon, of forgiveness. No repayment was asked for. He just forgave it. He saw man's heart at that time, at least externally, and he forgave him. He was astoundingly generous. So next step. What does this chapter 3, unforgiving servant do? The slave went out, verse 28. He found his fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down on the ground and entreated him of saying, Having patience with me, I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. You know, denarii was, were silver coins. Okay? It approximately equals to 100 days' wages of one man. Now, what, would, what do we talk about for a talent? It's 17,000. What was it? 17,000 for 100 men. So in comparison, it's completely lopsided. It just doesn't make sense. And he has been, here's a guy who has been forgiven of this huge monumental debt. And there's small debt somebody owed. And he, the interesting thing he says is, he went out and found the servant. So it means to actively search for someone who owed him money. Then he found him and demanded immediate payment, punctuating his demands, lashing out of the harshest threats and even physical brutality. How immoral is this? How grotesque of behavior is this? What gravity of lack of gratitude, the depth of his unforgiveness. But brothers and sisters, that picture is us. That's us. And I could end my sermon right here, but I won't. We'll go on. There's many more things I want to say. But that is us. It takes an interesting twist on chapter 4. Notice who else was offended by this. The servants, such harsh treatment of this debtor. His fellow servants. Verse 31, 32. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came came and reported to their Lord what had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you of the, the debt, all that debt, because you asked me, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? The interesting thing about that is, the other servants who witnessed this, they were angry at this person. But obviously this act, of this attitude of this, the sinner, the first servant, he basically, when you decide not to forgive, 
is that you elevate yourself at the level of the king to un- or higher. So the reaction of the other servant is, of the servants are, is that this picture of outrage in the community. Outrage in the community. So therefore, the application for us is, when a believer in the church doesn't clearly forgive another believer, other believers should be outraged. Should demand forgiveness. That's forgiveness accountability. Chapter 5. King's outrage. What happens now? Verses 34 and 35. And the Lord moved with his anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all, his, all that was owed to him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now this is a heavy, heavy theological debate. Okay, there are different interpretations. What does it mean when it says, the last sentence, so shall my heavenly Father also do to you if you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So she said, send them over to torturers to be condemned. Okay? There's first inter- one interpretation is that it's a popular one. Many people um, stand on it. This, this interpretation is that the unforgiving servant represents someone who heard the gospel, who's been with believers, who embraced at least externally, and ex- but never truly accepted the truth in his heart. So actually an unbeliever, which makes some sense. You know, but tr- truly, it's, this is a manner of forgiveness or unforgiveness depicts the heart of someone who is not regenerate. The second interpretation is that, that believers, by their actions, can lose salvation. But we know that what God gives us is true faith, perfect faith, perfect salvation. Genuine faith endures. It will persevere. The third one, which I believe is the most correct, and the basis of this teaching today is based upon this. Is when, what is the most important rule of interpretation? Number one, context. Who asked the question? In the whole chapter 18, remember the first part of chapter 18 talks about what? Church discipline. To restoration of a brother from a brother. And who asked this question here about this um, forgiveness? It is Peter. Obviously a believer. The context is, context is Christ is talking to his disciples, those who are closest to him. Okay? So the context here is from a believer to a believer. Because Peter asked a question. Okay? He was preaching to Peter and, his, um, and the rest of the disciples. So he aimed, his, Jesus Christ aimed his message towards not uncommitted hearers, but committed people. Okay? So this warning, warning, was for those who were closest to him in his innermost circle and those he loved and those who followed him. Okay? So what this parable is saying is it illustrates to us that God will discipline unforgiving believers. That God will discipline even harshly to those who are believers higher standard, folks, because we are recipients of His mercy. So, picture is of severe discipline, 
not condemnation. It is like a father who would discipline his child. Why? The motive is love. Not for punishment's sake. Not to kick him out of the house. For love and correction. So just to sum it all up in the last chapter. You know, our fleshly minds will protest against this. Immediate reaction is, this is so unachievable, unreasonable. It goes against our common sense. But Jesus makes it clear it's not about the number of uh, offenses. This parable depicts the sort of behavior of how we commit our sins, the gravity of our sins, and the repetitiveness of our sins. You know, the significance of this unforgiving servant is that from a legal standpoint, he had perfectly the right, although he has been forgiven or not by his Lord, he had perfectly the right to demand what was owed to him. He had right to claim what was his, what was due to him. However, the point is that, you know, forgiveness is not about our rights. It has nothing to do with our rights. It has nothing to do with what damage has been done to us how hurtful we are. It is not. But the focus is what God has done for us. Because what God has done for us is infinitely greater than all the offenses we'll experience in our lives. Also, the fun, another point is that the involvement of other outrage of other believe, other servants, other believers, how they get involved, how they're outraged, and so should, so should we. That's why this whole Matthew 18 ties together. It's Christ's instruction on how to handle discipline, how church gets involved. It sets a standard in which how we are to look at forgiveness and those who have offended us. The lesson is that God will discipline those believers who refuse to show mercy unto others. You know, Christians ought to be the most forgiving people on earth. Because they have been been forgiven. We have been forgiven like no one else. Especially to one another. Especially to the one another. Again, lastly in in this final chapter as we close this book on the parable is that the focus of the mindset is not on the fence. Focus is not not even on the offender. Rather, the forgiveness of what God has done. The forgiveness God has given us. So let me talk about the conclusion and consequences of unforgiveness. What is unforgiveness? We talked about this. Unforgiveness, bottom line, is sin. You know, sin is not just merely a personal offense against God. In this case, when we sin, especially in this case, it's a great deal more than that. Just to say we offended God is very shallow. It doesn't give the magnitude the offense. The view of sin then is very not low enough. The gravity of sin is not big enough when we just say, we have just offended God. The sin is attack on the entire holy, 
moral system of God. It is the offense against his entire dominion because everything that exists in his creation is governed by the system. Governed by holiness, system of holiness. Sin violates that and offends that entire system. You know, unforgiving attitude has no virtue, no gain. You know, unforgiving Christians is the biggest oxymoron there exists. Unforgiving Christians. How hypocritical can you get? How more hypocritical can you get? Biggest contradiction that exists. Therefore, in the big picture, in the church, unforgiving person is an offense to the entire church. You don't offend just one person. Entire church. Top to bottom. Therefore, the flock needs to get involved and deal with that and reconcile that. It violates a direct command of God. Not to forgive is a willful choice that we make. And that's the wrong thinking. Let's take it one step above. The greater question you ask, you should ask is salvation question. Perpetual unforgiveness may be an evidence of the heart that has not been regenerated or forgiven by God. Let me repeat that. Perpetual unforgiveness may be an evidence of the heart that has not been forgiven by God. Totally against who God is. If anyone is preoccupied by the offense someone has done to them, you should examine your salvation. If you do that perpetually. There's no value of victim mentality with God. Even if you think you're completely justified in your anger. Because sin, since forgiveness reflects the character of God in no greater way, unforgiveness, therefore, depicts the most ungodly character of us. Unforgiveness is no less than offense than fornication, adultery, murder. You know, John MacArthur says this in Matthew 5. He takes it one step even above me. And I, didn't, I don't know if I could go there studying that. He equates, clearly, of God equating the attitude of forgiveness, equating the same level as a murder. I have to think through that. I didn't have enough time. Probably true. I'm willing to bet on him. The gravity, you see the gravity here? So what is what is what does unforgiving spirit cause? Okay, let me talk to you about the three things. It causes the unforgiver for them to be unfit for communion, fellowship, and worship that involving God or other Christians. Let me talk about communion and fellowship together. When you're in sin, you cannot enjoy communion with God. If you're in sin, if you don't forgive, you can't enjoy sweet fellowship with other believers. Right? But the worst thing is, one step above that is worship. 
absence of forgiveness makes you unfit for worship. Why? Matthew 5 again. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift therefore there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. We've all heard this. Therefore, if you have unforgiving heart, there is really no point you being here in service. God does not want that worship. If you're an unforgiving heart, you have no business being here. No business being here. It's harsh, but this is what Scripture says. You cannot worship in that frame of mind. Paraphrasing, that's just what I just read, is the passage is, don't bother coming to worship if you're not reconciled to your Christian brother. Again, why is it so harsh? Because the entire system, which the justice system, the holiness system, which God governs over, is offended. It detests such view. Why? Because it's so self-centered. Second thing, of an unforgiving cause of unforgiving spirit, it causes bitterness for us to be trapped in our past. What do we do? We play that video over and over again in our minds. How we were offended. We think about what person said. What they did. We play it over and over again millions of times. And it gets, every time it gets played, it gets worse and worse. Our anger, anger gets worse and worse. Our vengeance gets worse and worse. We tell the story, the, we tell the story to ourselves over and over again of what the, we dwell on what the other person did. That's one thing I thank God is after my surgery, I realized you know, life is too short to be bitter. I find myself, I'm getting a little better at this. I could forgive people, little, forgive things a little bit better because of this. I sometimes myself, I catch myself thinking, wow, that doesn't bother me anymore. I thank God for that. Now, that's not to say that's open season on Bob and you could just lash out everything. <laughs> no, don't do that. That's came up heart surgery. Yeah, take it easy. But I thank God I have a little bit bigger perspective, better perspective on things. But don't go through life. I remind myself, let's, I don't want to go through life being bitter. I don't want to be on my deathbed being bitter. I want to be on my deathbed joyous. I'm going to see my Lord today. That my life was good. My life at Cornerstone was good. My life, my family was good. You know, Hebrews 12:15 says, See to that no one comes short of grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up causes of trouble. You know, bitterness usually leads to resentment, anger, slander, your malice. Bitterness as a response to what we have been offended, wrongdoing of others, is just not acceptable to God. You don't want to become slave to your emotions. You don't want to become slave to bitterness. It will slowly eat you away. Bitterness, like any other sin, it will permeate through your life. You'll be diseased by this. Lastly in this is what an unforgiving spirit causes is it's unedifying and it's discouraging to the saints. It hinders fellowship with other saints. 
How sad is this? You know, this what what this happens is this unforgiveness causes self-induced disfellowship. I guarantee you, if there's an unforgiving person, how many unforgivers, when you had unforgiving, we all had that, right? Unforgiving hearts. How many of us wanted to fellowship? How many of us wanted to go worship and play ball with the brothers? How many of us? It's, that's why it's self-induced disfellowship. This anger and bitterness is so deep. But the person who has offended you, you don't want to deal with, with him or her or anybody associated with him or her. Then it goes on to the church. How sad is that? How sad is that? You know, when unforgiveness goes unchecked, Christians are affected. Other Christians, we see it in this parable. Other Christians get outraged. And that's the right picture too. The outrage of other believers. Because we should all work together to be united. I'll talk about that a little bit more in the next section. You know, but the one thing greater than this is, unforgiveness creates a huge stumbling block. Not only does it hinder our fellowship with one another in the church, more importantly maybe, it hinders the influence of Christ. Our testimony of the gospel, our testimony of Jesus Christ may be ruined. That our, you know, if I were the enemy, if I were Satan, when unforgiveness happens, I'll be raising my hand like this. I'll be the Anaheim Angels last night. You know, I remember when I played sports, one thing I know that we could, we're on our way to win this game is when I see other team bickering. But not to get those guys to argue to one another, with one another. I know I have to get this game pretty much won. Same thing. If our enemy... Take, take a step back and think what our enemies would think. If you're trying to destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ and you see two people unforgiving, hey, I'm on my way. How grievous is this to the testimony of Jesus Christ? What He has done on the cross... When we allow bitterness to take over our lives, it spills over to all those around us, meaning believers. That's a sad picture. Sad picture. Let's talk about the greater, little the positive side. The obligation and object of forgiveness. Forgiveness, bottom line, is obedience. Forgiveness is an integral part of Christian's new nature. Not only that, forgiveness is Christianity at its highest level. We have the obligation to forgive. Forgiveness is hard. It's costly. It may hurt. But the truth is that it is our responsibility as believers. We need to overcome, I think, these two factors in forgiving. Number one, Selfishness, number two, pride. In order to forgive, we need to overcome that. Those two things. It comes down to those two factors. We have to set aside our selfishness and accept the grace, the wrong that has been uh, committed against us, not to demand what it's due. 
You know why is it so hard? Why is forgiving so hard? You know, forgiving is hard, right? Why is it so hard? Because it is absolutely against our sinful nature. Our fallen nature pulls us back. You know, remember in Godfather, when Michael Colvioni said, I want to get out, but they pull me back. Our fallen nature pulls us back to sin. Cheesy illustration, but it works. I couldn't think of anything else. Therefore, my conclusion is, forgiveness, why is it so hard? Because forgiveness is not within us. We can't just forgive because we want to. It is like faith. It has to be done through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It does not come easy. You know, you think about people who die. You know, this whole week, last uh, 10 days, this guy's going on Maryland, Virginia, shooting people. Can you imagine if you're a parent of one of those people? Or a wife, or a husband? How can you forgive that? Humanly impossible. Common sense doesn't tell us that we can. Could, that's why it could only be done. God asks us to do something that we cannot do. No. It could only be done. Because God knows it can be done through the Holy Spirit. How do we react to that? How do we react to that? Forgiveness may be the most godliest thing we can possibly do. It could be the most spiritual thing we could possibly do. That allows us to forgive others. Only through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Only by the presence and the work of the Spirit. Again, like I said before, new man is characterized by forgiveness. To obey Christ's command is to willfully and deliberately forgive others, regardless of our emotions, our feelings. It has nothing to do with that. One more thing about forgiveness here. Most important fact, I think, in the whole issue of forgiveness is that forgiveness is not a horizontal thing. That's just Step one. Okay? I, someone offends me, I forgive them, it's done. No. That's part of the small part of the picture. The bigger part is the vertical thing. Forgiveness is obedience, I said. It is all about God. The main object of forgiveness is obedience, so the main object at the end is God. We forgive because of God. Because of what Christ has done. We do it, it is required of us, and we do it because, out of obedience. Not just because we love another person, because he's a Christian. Yeah, that's part of the picture. But because we were recipients of that love. So the object is not the consideration of others, but the faith that manifests through forgiveness because the aim is obedience. What it depicts is the desire to honor God. The forgiving heart. What does forgiving heart do? Forgiving heart equals God-honoring heart. Not just a love, just a nice guy heart. God-honoring heart. And there's no greater way to evangelize. No greater way to display your genuine faith than to forgive. 
Why do we obey? I love this King James Version of Ephesians 4.32. It says, Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, it says. For the sake of Christ's atonement, we forgive. Another way to look at it. Forgiveness honors Christ's atonement. Think about it in that terms. That is huge. That's monumental. Forgiveness honors Christ's death and atonement and His resurrection. You know, you talk about spurring one another on. You talk about iron sharpening iron. You talk about being Christ-like. I can't think of a better way than to generously forgive others. Forgive others constantly, consistently, all the time. Why? Because that's just because it's hard to love. It's humanly almost impossible to just forgive and to love. But we could do it through the indwelling Holy Spirit because it's out of obedience to God. So let me talk about two results of forgiving spirit. Just two things. I said this before. Unity. What is the result of forgiving spirit? Number one is unity. And the Pastor James talked about unity in the church last week. You know, there's no better way, I think. Forgiveness does a lot. There's no greater way to effectively preserve the unity of the body, of a Christian organization, a church mainly, through practicing perpetual forgiveness. And one could say that there's no unity without forgiveness. There's no church without forgiveness. No, we say, oh, okay, it's just me. If I don't forgive, no big deal, just me. You know, the word fellowship, we know that word, kononia, it means, it's translated to be belonging. You know, you take a bigger picture, I couldn't think of a better illustration. You know, if you play basketball, it's five on five, right? Start playing three on five and four on five, how many chances do you have to win? I guarantee you, even Michael Jordan's greatest days, even Shaq, they play four on five against even the Trailblazers, or maybe even... Denver Nuggets. Okay. I hope no one's from Denver here. What chances do you have? If one person is out, the picture is the same. You're not in fellowship. That's how much it hurts the body. The unity is difficult. So we should pursue forgiveness as a body. That's what Matthew 18 commands. When the last step of church discipline, everybody goes after that person. It's body accountability. Help them see the idea is the same. Number two, second thing again is evangelism. Again, to, not to forgive is the greatest hypocritical act of a Christian. One of the greatest ways a Christian's actions that, that may display genuine forgiveness and uh, genuine salvation is to um, display genuine salvation um, forgiveness. May not be. You know, imagine an unbeliever witnessing something that just goes against common sense, and you see two believers doing the same thing, forgiving one another. How great is that? What a testimony of Jesus Christ! Isn't that what Christ did on the cross? So by this, all this, the main result of forgiveness is obedience and honors God, honors Christ's atonement. Lastly power of forgiving. 
believers as new beings, we should be characterized by forgiveness. It should be done it shouldn't be done begrudgingly, but it should be done freely. It should not end in bitterness or anger. We are to do this for Christ's sake in obedience to God so that we can honor Him. Let me ask you a couple of things this morning. Three things. Do you have some reconciling to do? Do it ASAP. With your spouse, maybe even your children, your brothers or sisters. Whomever. Are we, second question, are we seeking body accountability? Are we so, or are we so desensitized to forgiveness, we kind of bury it, put it under the rug, we don't like to talk about it? That's not the picture here. This parable, this parable teaches against that. Last question, are you here today giving God, our holy God, true and pure and righteous worship? Is your heart right? Examine your heart. Let me end my sermon today by telling you this story. Maybe some of you will know. Mitsuo Fuchida, 39-year-old gun pilot, he was a leader of a squadron that led one of the attacks on Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7, 1941. After the war, he was proud of his achievement. After the war, he found a friend who had been captured by the Americans and finally was coming home. He went to see him. He asked him how he treated the Americans, treated them. And he talked about, his friend talked about this American girl named Peggy Cobble, about a 20-year-old woman in her 20s. She came into the camp and helped the sick and the prisoners, Japanese people, uh, soldiers, immensely. So he asked, his friend asked him, asked her, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Why do you do this to enemies? And her reply was astoundingly, and astonishingly, the Japanese army killed my parents. Her parents had been missionaries in the Philippines. And the, and the Philippines were invaded by Japanese. They charged them as spies and ex- executed them. But she remembered, Peggy remembered how her parents loved the Japanese and the Filipino people. She ministered to many of them. And she was convinced that her parents did not die with bitterness or against Japanese people. So Peggy chose the path of love and forgiveness. And soon after, interested in what this woman was doing, Fuchida, Mitsuo Fuchida, met an American missionary named DeShazer. DeShazer was one of the men. You saw, saw that movie Pearl Harbor? When General, that was Major Doolittle then, led the attack on Tokyo, and then they crashed into China and things. He was, he was on Doolittle's um, squadron. He was captured. He was in Japanese imprisonment for many, many months. Endured, obviously, difficult times. And during his imprisonment, not being a Christian, he had a lot of time on his hands and got hold of the Bible. And he read through the Old and New Testament and became a Christian. But he, he said, when war is over after I go home, I'm going to learn scripture and then return as a missionary to Japan. He found the love for Japanese people. And Fuchida was deeply impressed. Deeply impressed. In 1949, so four years had passed, he began, Fuchida began 
to see this unbelievable acts of forgiveness by these people and began to read Luke 23. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he became a Christian. This is the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness, just act, can show the, depict the gospel more than, better than anywhere else. In Fuchida, in his latter days, he was once a devout follower of Adolf Hitler. But he became a Christian. Then, wrote a book called From Pearl Harbor to Golgotha. You know, stirring, hearing stories like this, you see the power of forgiveness. It has no boundaries. No greater way to evangelize. No greater way to show Christ's love. One thing I ask, I pray, and I hope you all join with me in praying, that our love for believers should be so enlarged that forgiveness becomes easy. Forgiveness for one another becomes so large that it becomes easy. It is my prayer today that this body of Cornerstone would be known by our love through forgiveness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for Christ's teaching. We thank you for your word. How marvelously and how clearly it displays the word of God. The love of God. Especially today, how we are to forgive one another. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for Christ. We have a small chance of forgiving one another because you have forgiven us first. Help us to look to Christ as we forgive others. Motivation of our forgiveness being obedience to you, knowing that it honors you. May our life, whether it's forgiveness or through any other avenues, that we would live our lives according to Scripture, by readily forgiving one another. For the God, I praise you for your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. I pray that this body would be spurred on to forgiving one another. In Jesus' name I pray.